Well, let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Sometimes the problem the the problem that we have as churches is uh, is that we focus on things that are of little importance eternally. You know, things that aren't going to matter really five years from now, let alone uh, in eternity. And one of our problems is that that we can tend to focus our time and energy and our resources on portraying a certain image, so that you know we have to find as a church our ministry niche, so so that each little church or big church for for that matter has to find out its little niche. Where does it fit in? Where can it provide some sort of service that people will like? But what you should notice in this letter, and all of Paul's letters for that matter, is that Paul is not concerned about attracting people in the sense that we we need to to fill up a place. Um, he's not concerned about any building projects. You never ask, you know, he never asks, say, how's that how's that building project going over there in Colossae? You know, not concerned about that. He he's not concerned about filling up meeting spaces. What is his primary concern? It is their spiritual well-being. How are you doing spiritually? With the people that you have, how are you doing? And how are you doing in reaching out to other people? Okay. Obviously, we don't want to just minimize uh, numbers and say, well, it doesn't matter, you know, us for no more type mentality. But, but what Paul is most concerned about is their spiritual well-being. When that is taken care of, then all those other things will, will fall into place. And so when Paul speaks to these churches through these letters, he is um, often like you know the, the the godly elderly man in the church who asks you, you know, how are things going for you spiritually? How, how are you doing with your walk with God or that sweet lady? You know, are, are you in the Word today? Did you learn anything from the Scriptures this week on your own? And uh, and that's the way Paul is with with regard to. His conversations with these churches. Let's read our passage tonight. I'm going to shorten it from what I intended had intended on the schedule, but um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. This is the Word of God. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. The preached Word of God brings results, as we will see this evening. The preached Word of God, or we could say more generically, the proclaimed Word of God, so that you, know, you, you know, as, a, as a person who's not a preacher, could go out into the world and proclaim the Gospel, and you're going to see some sorts of results. And... And what you're going to find is just like in this passage, the preached Word of God transforms some. 
like like we see in verses 13 and 14. And then we see in verses 15 and 16 that the preached Word of God hardens others or it further condemns them. So first, the preached Word of God transforms some. In verse 13, he says that you, Thessalonians, you accepted the Word from us. Notice how he begins the verse. He says, for this reason. So he doesn't start a brand new thought. He is continuing what he had been talking about. He has been defending his ministry to them. Remember in verses 1-12, through 12, he kept repeating the phrase, as you know. You, you know. You saw me. right? And then he also repeated the phrase or the idea that I was approved by God or God is my witness. That I was doing this, I was presenting this gospel to you not with ulterior motives, with a bait and switch sort of mentality to try to get something else out of you like money or fame for myself. It was about you. It was about your spiritual well-being. You know that, and so he continues the thought here in verse thirteen. For this reason, we also thank God for you constantly. And here in these verses, he further shows that his ministry was proper because they had received the message from God as if it was from God Himself. And the reason that Paul knew that was because their lives genuinely changed. Notice what he says there in verse 13. We also constantly thank God for... Uh, we constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men. Constantly thank God. Remember, this is back chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. He says, I thank God for you. Again, it's not wrong to, to thank people directly, but what Paul does primarily when he talks about the, the spiritual well-being or the progress that people are making, he, he tells them that he's thanking God for them. Instead of exalting them to a high place, he says, I thank God for you. And he knew um, that uh, he, he thanked God in chapter 1 for two primary things. One was their faithfulness. Remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope, chapter 1, verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 10, he thanked God for their divine election, that God had chosen them. And the reason that he knew that was because their lives had been changed. And in that, in both of those case, cases, their faithfulness and God's choosing of them, do you know who gets to take the credit for that? Not them. They don't get to take the credit for it, but God. And so he thanks the proper person for whom the the result or from whom the results come. And he does the same thing here in verse 13 of chapter 2. He recognizes that, you know, it's not you that deserve thanksgiving. It's not me, even though I'm the one who gave you the gospel. I could try to take credit for it, but it's not me, it's not you that deserves the credit. It's God. And so I'm going to thank God for the word of God being received by you. That was only something that God could do. And notice the first thing for which Paul thanks God. He says, We also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. The first thing that he gives thanks for is that they received the message. When Paul says that they received the Word of God... He wasn't talking about them receiving a reward Bible, right? He didn't pass out Bibles to all of them and say, you, you received the Word of God. That's, when we think of the Word of God, we often think of it in a bound form. And 
rightfully so because the scriptures talk about it that way often. But you've got to remember in those days, particularly in the early church, they didn't have bound copies of the scriptures that everybody could have. And notice the phrase there. It says, which, in the middle of the verse, which you heard from us. Which you heard from us. What was going on here? Paul wasn't giving them copies of the Bible. Paul wasn't simply reading the Bible. In fact, we know that he wasn't just reading the Bible because Acts 17 tells us that when he established that work there in Thessalonica, that he was, remember, reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Explaining and proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This is what we're looking at on Wednesday night in Acts chapter 17. That Jesus had to suffer and that He had to be raised from the dead. So it wasn't just Paul handing them a Bible. It wasn't that he was just reading it. He was actually proclaiming the truth. He was explaining the truth of the Scriptures to them. And this is what God used to change them. So this Word was accepted by them. And they didn't, in the middle of the verse, they didn't receive it as the Word of men. Even though it actually was, in one sense, a Word from a man. It was a word from an imperfect man, Paul. And yet, even though it came from an imperfect man, they took what Paul had to say and they took it as the Word of God itself. As if God were there speaking to them. This is the power of the Word of God being preached. That God speaks through frail imperfect human beings. They, ac- they accepted Paul's reasoning of the Scripture as truth. They accepted the preaching, the proclamation of the Gospel. And if this is a very powerful truth if you can wrap your arms around it. And, and this is it. That proclaimers of God's, words, of God's Word are mouthpieces of God. Proclaimers of God's Word are mouthpieces of God. God here, through the Apostle Paul, inspired uh, the inspired writing that we have here is that they accepted Paul's explanation of the Scripture as God's Word itself. Do you see that in the verse? Look at verse 13 again. In the middle of the verse it said, uh, When you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men but for for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Isn't the power of preaching amazing? For example, I could preach a message on confessing sin to God. I could say something like, you need to confess that sin that you are struggling with right now. And I could not, I wouldn't have to give one example of what kind of sin that I'm talking about. And here's the, the, the power of the preached word is that God uses His Holy Spirit to work in your heart and show you exactly what kind of dark places need to be uncovered. And you could come up to me after the service and say, I realize I need to give this up. But I never told you to give that up. See, as the preacher, I never told you to give that up. This is the power of God's Spirit working through the preached Word. There's something spectacular that God has set up here. 
And that happens through this means of preaching. Not because of the power of the preacher. It's not because of the sinlessness of the preacher because there's no such thing in our day. Obviously, Christ was. But, but, it, but in our day, there's no sinlessness of a preacher. It comes because the Word of God is powerfully being used uh, that, that I, as the preacher, any, any other man who speaks on behalf of God, is a conduit of God's mercy as it's poured out through His Word. Now, please understand that this doesn't work for everyone who claims that they're speaking on behalf of God, right? Notice why Paul knows that they actually received it. Look at the end of verse 13. Which also performs its work in you who believe. Okay, Paul knew that it was a genuine change and that God was working through his preaching because they had actually changed. That's the key. So, you know, you could have some some radio or TV preacher who's getting up there to, to tr- just do it for the sake of money and just saying a bunch of things and saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God. That doesn't mean they are, right? We understand that. The real test are, is, are people being changed? Are they being transformed into the, into the image of Christ? That's how we know when the preaching is of God. Are people being changed into the image of Christ? Because that's what the Spirit does through preaching. Through God, this God-ordained means. He changes people. So Paul thanks them for their genuine faith. And one evidence of their faith is that it endured through persecution. This makes sense, uh, as we'll see in this passage. Uh, it, it speaks to the genuineness of the message, right? Who's going to embrace a message who uh, and, and accept suffering at the same time? If, if I'm going to, to suffer for this message, then I re- really must believe it. And that's what's going on here in verse 14. Follow along as I read. For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So here's the reason why I know that, the, that, that there is power in the preached Word of God and why I'm giving thanks to God because your lives have been changed and even to the point, verse 14, that you are willing to endure suffering. I mean, who embraces a message that comes with persecution attack attached to it, whether physical or verbal or any other kind? Only a person who truly believes it. Only a person who's truly been transformed by it, right? And that's what's going on here with the Thessalonians. Their, their acceptance of the Word is seen in their good works. And that's what verse 14 is about. First, Paul talks about their... Imitation In chapter 1, verse 6, they had imitated Paul and the Lord Himself. But here, they're imitating someone else or some, some other people. Notice who they're imitating. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Apparently, when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, they had taught them about the history of the church. They had taught them that the... the churches that were immediately surrounding the Jerusalem area, that's Judea, these churches were suffering severe persecution as the Gospel was beginning to spread out, right? And apparently Paul and Silas talked about that to this church. 
And Paul would have known about this firsthand, wouldn't he? Why? Because he was receiving the persecution of these Judean churches? No. Because he was on the other side, right? He was the one who was the persecutor. And so here in verse 14, he says, you are just like those churches. Not that you're actively seeking persecution, right? You're going around saying, hey, listen to what I believe and, and I know that you all are going to hell. Okay, not that sort of thing. They're not seeking persecution, but they're following these churches in the sense that they're willing to suffer for their faith. That was to be commended. And so they imitated not only Paul and the Lord Jesus, chapter 1, verse 6, but these Judean churches by following along with them and suffering for their faith. Paul explains uh, this suffering. You endured, endured the same suffering by your own countrymen. And this is similar to the Judean churches, right? Just as they had endured suffering from their own countrymen, which would have been what, which people group? The Jews. Paul's saying, you Thessalonians are also receiving persecution from your own countrymen, which were not the Jews, but who? Gentiles. Okay, so you, from your own people. Remember, uh, Paul and, uh, and Silas were there, and then the Jews came and stirred up the crowd in Acts 17. We saw that this past Wednesday, the lewd fellows of a baser sort, remember? Now, we don't know the nature of the persecution of the Judean churches, but what we do know is that they were willing to suffer for their, their faith. And at the very least, it would have been some sort of social rejection, almost an ostracization. They were ostracized from society, verbal abuse or false accusations. But it could have been more than that. It could have been physical beatings as well, and even to the point of, of being killed for their faith. But whatever the case is, Paul's saying, you are also enduring the same suffering from your own countrymen, and I commend you for that. I thank God for you. Because I can see that the, the, the Word of God has been powerfully proclaimed to you, and the reason I know that is because your life is changed. So the, the preached Word of God changes some. The preached Word of God changes some. Haven't you seen in your life that some of the the most powerful changes that have taken place, sometimes subtle, but when you look back at them, they happen underneath, when you are underneath the preaching of God's Word. They don't often happen in those crisis situations. You know, we get in a car accident or you know, we're in a foxhole somewhere and we say, God, I, I'm changing my life. I've given it all over to You. They often happen when we are sitting underneath the preached Word of God and God pricks our heart in one way or another, sometimes powerfully in a way that, that just rocks us, and sometimes in, in a more subtle way, where we see, you know what, God, I, I am holding this area of my life back, and, and now I'm going to give it to You. I'm giving up that sin. This is how God works. He works primarily in this age through the preached Word of God. And so it changes some, but it hardens others. Verses 15 through 16. Paul now goes on a little diatribe uh, on the Jews, the people of the Jews, because he said, You experienced this uh, from your own countrymen, but the Judeans were experiencing it from their own countrymen, and those people are 
the Jews. That's what it says at the end of the verse. Even as they did, the Judean churches did from the Jews. Now he talks about the Jews and the hardening that has come upon them who both killed the Lord, verse 15 says, and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. So this group of churches were being persecuted by these hardened Jewish people. And at the first part of verse 15, Paul quickly describes their past history. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Then he talks about their recent history that they drove us out. Right? They drove us out. They, they let us out of the city and they're not pleasing to God. So first, the past history of the Jews. The Jews killed the Lord. Everyone knows this. Even though the Jews weren't the ones who drove the nails into His hands, they weren't the one who actually put the cross up in its place. We all understand that they were the master masterminds behind it, weren't they? I mean, who was it that charged Jesus with, with blasphemy? Who brought the charges before Him? They said to him and to his face, you are casting out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. You, you are blaspheming God. Hey, they, they bring that charge against him. Who was it who took the money from Judas? Who was it who stirred up the crowds to crucify him? Without the Jews, Christ would not have died. And so the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul... That's to whom Paul attributes it. Look at Mark chapter 12. Because not only did they kill the Christ, they had killed the prophets before Him. Mark. This is a very powerful passage. It really, um, I think at the time, would have been very shocking to the Jewish audience. The passage seems to answer the question that was asked in Mark 11:28, which is, "By what authority, Jesus, do you do these things? How can you cast out demons? How can you do these miracles? Who's your, who, who makes you the representative of God? Or, or as the words of the parable will be, who makes you the representative of the vineyard owner? Right? How could you do this? And that's what seems to be what the answer is. Jesus is going to answer them here. And he does it in an indirect way. Remember, Jesus would would often speak forthrightly, but then there was a time when they had rejected him. And look at the first part of verse 1, chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. Okay, so they're asking the question, by whose authority do you do this th- these things? And instead of coming out and telling them specifically, he speaks to them in parables. And we know from other passages that the reason he does that is to hide truth from some who are not capable of hearing it in the sense of spiritually capable and to disclose it to others like the disciples and to us. Okay, so I think he's answering this question. And here's what we find in this passage that, and I think the Jews recognize his point. And he began to speak to them in parables, verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the, vine, vine, uh, the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vineyard growers or vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some, killing others. And he had one more to send, 
a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. This helps paint the picture for the Jews' past history. They killed the messengers of God. In the Old Testament, it was the prophets. Some they simply rejected. Some they beat. Some they killed. That's what we see here in the passage. you see that? That's what Jesus is talking about. And then the, vine, uh, the, the vineyard owner says, you know what? I, I've got one more to send. It's my son. They will respect my son. But do they? They don't respect him. They say, no, this is... We will now be heirs. And this is the heir. And if we kill him, then the inheritance is ours. And so they kill the son. And at the end of the passage, we find out that they know that that Jesus is talking about them. The Jews know that. And so, because of this, we should not be surprised when they reject us. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's not surprised by this. They killed the prophets. They killed the Lord. And thirdly, he says here in verse 14, they, or verse 15, they drove us out. We're not surprised by this. We're going to be mistreated if we're going to stand up for the sake of Christ because they killed the very representative, the, the, the prime representative of God. And uh, specifically, that took place in Paul's case, when he was in Thessalonica, he and Silas were preaching in the synagogue there for three Sundays, three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, excuse me. And then some period after that, the Jews came out and they dragged Jason and some other believers into the middle of the city and they said, where is Paul and Silas? You cannot stir up the crowd again. And in order to be released, you need to provide a bond, a pledge, that, that, that uh, uh, um, an amount of money in order to say that you're not going to stir up any more strife. And so apparently Paul and Silas and the others decided it would be best for Paul and Silas to leave. Paul felt this. He knew this. He knew that the the Jews were wicked people in general. Not as a whole. You understand what I'm saying. The recent history of the Jews is also one of persecution. The end of verse 15, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Paul here continues his commentary on their wickedness. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. As one writer puts it, it is in the best interest of every human to get an opportunity to hear the Gospel. So for the Jews to stand in the way of the Gospel is to be hostile to all men. That's what's going on here. They don't want the Gentiles to hear the Gospel. They're like Jonah in Nineveh. I don't want them to hear it. Because perhaps you will be merciful to them, God, and you will give them an opportunity to repent. I don't want to be a part of that. 
They're wicked people. They deserve your wrath. They were hindering, verse 16 says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. These Jews personally tried to stop the progress of the Gospel. And that, Paul says in verse 15, was not pleasing to God. And because of their history, their past history, killing the prophets, killing the Lord, killing these messengers, or sending out these messengers, sending them out, stopping the progress of the Gospel, or attempting to, Paul continues by saying, at the end of verse 16, there will be just condemnation for these Jews. Notice the nature of their apostasy in the middle of verse 16. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. They always fill up the measure of their sins. The picture here is one of a cup being filled up with wickedness. The Scripture often talks about God's wrath. Uh, uh, excuse me, God's patience. That the God, God is so patient with even evil people, wicked people, that He gives them an opportunity to fill up their cup all the way to the brim before He finally pours out judgment on them. That's the nature of our God. He is merciful. He gives time for people to repent. And instead of them seeing that God is loving and merciful, they keep filling up their cup with more and more wickedness. Now think about this with me. At what point, okay, keep the cup picture, at what point would God be just to pour out the full measure of His wrath on these people who are wicked? Is it when they have one drop of sin in there? Is it when they have 1,000 drops of sin? Is it when they have one million sins in that cup? When would God be just to condemn them to an eternal hell for defying Him? Is it when the cup is more than half full of wickedness? So now, the wickedness weighs, outweighs the opportunity to stop being wicked. Let me ask the question this way. At what point would God have been just to condemn you to an eternal hell? At what point? Not when you filled up your cup of wickedness. But as the infinite God, God demands perfection. And so the first time that you stopped being perfect... David said, I was born in sin. In sin my mother conceived me. Not that my, my mom was wicked, but that in the womb I was in sin. Because of his, his, uh, his father Adam and our father Adam. He is our federal representative that he represents us in our sin. So that we're born sinners and that's why we sin. We don't become sinners because we sin. We're already sinners, and that's why we sin. Our hearts are filled with sin. And so God has every right. He would be completely just if He condemned us the first time that we sin. And yet, what does God do with us? Does He do that? Did He condemn you the first time that you sinned to an eternal hell? No, He was patient with you, wasn't He? That's the nature of our God. 
He's patient. In Genesis 15, verse 16, listen to this. God is promising to bless Abraham with a great inheritance, including a great land. And God could have given that to him right away. Here you go. Here's Israel. It's all yours. Or He could have given it to Isaac or to Jacob. But you know what He told them? You have to wait 400 years. You know why? He says, because the sins of the Amorites have not reached full measure. I'm going to give them time to repent. These wicked people. Think about this. What did that mean for the people of Israel over the next 400 years? Where would they be? Most of it would be in captivity, right? It would be under Egypt's oppression. And God says, you know what? I'm willing to allow you to suffer so that other people will have an opportunity to repent. And I hope that's okay with you because that's the type of merciful God I am. I would be completely just to take these Amorites out completely. To just wipe them out for their sin. They've already done enough wickedness. But just like I gave you an opportunity to repent, so I'm going to give them until their wickedness fills up to the brim and then it's obvious I have to judge them. This is our God. He's a merciful and patient God. I'm not quick to judge, God says. I'm not quick to become angry. I am quick to show mercy. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Because we see this again here. At the greatest measure of wrath that's poured out on the earth in human history, Revelation chapter 16. This is the seventh bowl of God's judgment. The final bowl. Remember, you have the seals, the first seven seals. That leads to the seven trumpet judgments, and that leads to the seven bowl judgments. And those are extremely terrible, terrifying days, the second half of the tribulation. Nobody wants to be a part of that. And it's at this time when God shows Himself very clearly to these people with His judgment upon them, and the, the, the survivors here, they fail to repent. Look at chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Notice the language there in verse 19. That Babylon, Babylon filled up her cup of wickedness, is the idea. They were remembered by God. And, and because they filled up the measure of their wickedness, their, their cup of wickedness, God was going to fill up the, the cup of His wrath on them, as He talks about in the prophets. The prophets. And if you don't think that God gave them an opportunity to repent, then just look at verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And what did people do? What did the survivors do? They say, wow, this is from God. This is a great judgment. I need to repent. He is real. I need to give myself to the Creator 
the king of all kings. No, they blaspheme the name of God. How dare you do this to me? How dare you? How dare you do this to our earth? We deserve more. They saw the hailstones, 100 pounds, and they knew that they were from God, but instead of repenting, they blasphemed God. And the sad thing is, this is not the first time that they've seen God. Clearly, look at verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Look at verse 11. Uh, After the, the fifth angel pours out his bowl, the kingdom becomes darkened. Verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Isn't God merciful even to the most wicked people? He gives them plenty of time. And this gives us a window into the persecution that we face. The social rejection. The verbal abuse that you receive because of your relationship with God. This helps you to see what God is doing. Although we can't know fully or specifically what He's doing, Sometimes what we understand from these passages is that God allows you to suffer at the hands of others in order to give them time to repent. This is a merciful act of God to allow you to suffer. Think of Stephen. If you met Stephen in heaven, you, you, you might say to him, you know, your suffering looked like God's judgment on you. Your life ended way too soon, Stephen. The fact that you were stoned to to death suggests that God had forgotten you or that you did something wrong. Why would God do such a thing? And Stephen says, come here, let me introduce you to my friend Paul. You know what Paul was doing while I was being stoned? He was standing there holding the coats. He was approving of my stoning. And the fact that I, I was stoned with Paul there, I am happy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because He, yes, played a big role in my death, but God played a big, accomplished a big work in His life. He gave Him more time to repent. And I'm thankful that God was slow to judge Him. And this is the way that we should view our suffering. Sadly, not everyone repents. Not everyone's like Paul, are they? Like these people in Revelation, many will continue to enjoy their sin, continue to pursue their sin, and will will fill up their cup of wickedness. And as a result, God will pour the full cup of His wrath upon them. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians 2. The desire of the Jews, Paul says historically, has been to stop the gospel but amazingly, this actually works into God's plan for them. This works into God's plan because He's going to pour out His wrath on them because they filled up, notice the, that middle part of verse 16, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. They're not actually hindering the Gospel. They're actually only bringing more wrath upon themselves. The result of their apostasy is this wrath from God. Now what is this wrath? Was it some kind of a catastrophe that would happen in their lifetime? Maybe a famine or an invasion of an army? 
on the nation of Israel. Notice the phrase there, the wrath has come. It sounds like it's a past tense, and it is in the Greek language. And so it sounds like the Jews have already experienced the consequences of their sin. But I think what's going on here is Paul's using what's called a proleptic verb. Okay, All that means is that he's using a past tense verb to express a future guarantee. Like he does in Romans chapter 8, when he says those who are predestined are called, and those who are called are justified, and those who are justified are what? Do you remember? Glorified. Wait a second, Paul. You messed up there. You put the wrong tense. You were supposed to say, and will be glorified. But what was he saying? He's saying, just as certain as you have been called eternally by God, you've been chosen by God eternally, and as certain as it is that you have been called and that you have been made right before God, so it is certain that you will be glorified. And I am so certain that you will that I'm going to speak about it in the past tense. This is what he's doing here, I believe. The wrath of God has come. It is so certain that it's going to happen that I can speak about it as if it already has. And so I would suggest to you that this wrath of God is the wrath of God that's coming on them in the end times. Because they filled up the cup of their wickedness, God gave them plenty of time to repent and they still failed to repent. And at that time, the guarantee of their condemnation is sure. It's so certain that that Paul speaks of it in the past tense. So, as churches, I started out by saying sometimes we focus on the wrong things. We focus on things that are of little importance. And what I would suggest to you is that when we focus on what is first importance, then God often gives us what is of first importance. You know, if we focus on the size of our crowd or the size of our bank account or on the image that we're portraying, we may or may not get those things, right? We may or may not get a lot of money, a lot of people, a great image. But, But when we focus on what is of first importance, which, as I suggested at the beginning, is the spiritual well-being of our church, and that's what God's going to give to us. We make the main thing the main thing, and that's what God's going to work in us. And, and that's why we try here at our church to make everything centered around the Word of God. We want to make sure that the Word of God is at the center of what we're doing, so that in our singing, and in our praying, and in our giving, and in our fellowship with one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, in our preaching, that it is centered around the Word of God because that's what God uses to change people. And here's how we know if God's changing people. Or here's how we know that the Word of God is being preached powerfully. Are people being changed? We need to focus on what is of first importance and that's what God will bless. The second uh, point of application I, I simply want to say is that we ought to thank God for those who endure persecution. Do you see a fellow believer in this church or in another church nearby or another church around the world that is enduring persecution? You know what Paul did when he saw that and these people and the Thessalonians? He thanked God for them. We ought to do the same. Thank God for those who are enduring persecution. Encourage them. Send them a letter. Give them a... You know, 
take them out for lunch or something and say, you know, I really appreciate what God's doing through you. I know it's not easy. Thank God for those who endure persecution. The priest word of God brings results, and the results show up in changed lives. Changed lives will be seen when people are enduring suffering, persecution. And God will bless what we put as first importance. When we make what is of first importance in His mind, of first importance in our church. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are grateful for those men and women who have gone before us. And, and uh, we can see now why some of the, the, the apostles would say that they counted themselves worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. They saw that they were a part of Your plan. And even if it did uh, delay the judgment of some wicked people, it also showed Your mercy because You gave them more time. We love You for Your mercy. We love You for delaying Your judgment on us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were hostile towards You. We were Your enemies. We were blind. We loved our sin. We loved our master, Satan. And if it were not for You rescuing us, if it were not for Your Spirit giving us life, we would still be there. And we would be suffering for eternity for the wickedness that we had committed. But instead, Jesus Christ has taken our place. He's taken the wickedness, the judgment for our wickedness upon Himself. And by His stripes, we are healed. Thank You for Him. Thank You for our church. Help us to continue to consider how we can make the Word of God more central in our church. May You help me as I preach and help each person here as they uh, uphold the truth and help me to do the same. We need each other and most of all, we need You. We recognize that we are lost without You. We're nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And so we cling to Him. And we're thankful that He clings to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.